Well, welcome to Before You Go. I'm Bryant Monte. And I'm Nicole Franklin. And Bryant, I wanted to go with what we're about here, talking to our seniors about longevity, but with a little twist. And I'll tell mm-hmm. you why. Um, I know a man, uh, Robert Paseca, who is serving a life sentence in mm-hmm. the penal system in Pennsylvania. And, you know, we get to chat and I'm like, I think Mr. Paseca can probably introduce me to some of our elders who are inside because as Mr. Paseca introduces himself, he'll say, I'm serving life. I am meant to die in prison. And that always strikes me when he says it. So I was thinking, well, what is it like for those who are within our age group? You know, we like to talk to 100 year olds here, slightly younger, slightly older. Right. Right. And he told me, he says, Nicole, no one lives to be that age here. And again, mm. that struck me again. And so he said, but I have some friends you can talk to about it. And one is Yusef Jones. And Mr. Yusef Jones was kind enough to take our call. Yes. <laughs> Welcome to the show, <laughs> Yusef Jones. Welcome. Welcome. It's so nice to have you here. Yes. Well, it's, uh, it's my pleasure. And I appreciate the fact that the work that you're doing, um, it reminds me of collecting the slave narratives. Mm-hmm. And um, um, I participate in a group called Performing History. Oh, wow. So I, I definitely can appreciate the work that you're doing. Well, thank you. And the work that you're doing as well, because I know that you're very active in campaigning and we have um, here in the U.S. an election coming up, a very important one. Um, Mm -hmm. But first, let's talk about Yusef Jones. Um, How do you and Mr. Paseca know each other? How did you get introduced to the system? I'm one of the gentlemen that came through the Black Power era at the close of the civil, not going to say the close of the civil rights movement, but when we transitioned away from being um, completely nonviolent into a self-defense posture uh, that has its history with deacons for defense and uh, come by way of uh, the Black Panther Party out there in California. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, my exploits led me to prison and it was in prison that I met Mr. Robert Pizek. Okay, and then you received a sentence. Uh, you were supposed to be in prison, I'm hearing, a certain amount of time, and then um, you got out before, or how did that work? Yeah, I was sentenced to basically 30 to 65 years. My God. And I served uh, 33 years uh, in four months. Yeah. That, I, no, go I ahead, Brian. think about... Um, you know, what that meant for you at a young age. I mean, how did that really impact you mentally and going into a system like this? And how to survive, you know, how do you you keep your head up? I move away from these constructs of alpha males. But uh, during that period, I defined myself as an African warrior. And uh, for me, uh, like Malcolm said, that anything... Uh, uh, south for the Canadian border is the penitentiary as far as uh, Black Americans are concerned. Yeah. So the psychological transition, I mean, mm-hmm. it's another day in the life. Um, for me, one of the things I try and get people to understand is prisons are actually 
small cities. Mm. And uh, for me, while they had my body constrained, uh, I continued to be a free person uh, throughout my incarceration. And you served in Pennsylvania? Yes, ma'am. So that has a large population of people who are in for life. And it's notoriously um, known for having a lot of prisoners in as lifers, if I'm correct. Yes, ma'am. More than more than five thousand. Right. When I entered prison, there there might only have been five thousand people in the in the prison period in the prison system period. There were only seven penal institutions. Now we in like 34, 35 penal institutions. uh, The results of mass incarceration. When you um, got out of prison, what were you what were you ready to do? And, and I mean, what is that feeling, you know, walking out into um, a life where you're free? And are you truly free? I'm still on parole. Okay. And uh, it acts as a fetter, but it doesn't interfere with any of the activities that I participate in. Uh, it's just that, you know, you just got that attachment to the system that, uh, for example, if I broke up a fight and the police officers was to show up at the fight and it looked like that I could have been uh, a participant, I'd end up back in the penitentiary. So it's delicate. You're doing a delicate dance always. It, I, it could be a delicate dance, but like I said, you know, I try and move away from the alpha male uh, constructs, uh, knowing how toxicity, how toxic masculinity has uh given uh protect and uh provide a bad name knowing how it's done that uh but for me i do as i please mm-hmm. and and if you could share with us what it's like to be older in the system like this because you're th- some things we don't even think about such as growing old in an institution like prison i'm certain that that's probably the greatest fear mm-hmm. of any long-termer or any person sentenced to life. Uh, They confine you to a casket and the pace of life in the world has accelerated. And as a consequence, coming of age uh, in prison where you finally come to terms with what life is uh, and you try to situate yourself both historically and socially in the scheme of uh, human events. But during that period of time, you have so many eureka moments that you could contribute to your family, to your community. And uh, you spend most of your time trying to figure out how to do just that. And uh, you feel the pressure of uh, um, the fact that uh, you're mortal and that uh, you have a, a shelf life. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, you feel that crushing you from all sides. More when we return. We're back with Mr. Yusef Jones, who served more than 30 years in the prisons of Pennsylvania. The men who have successfully uh, 
um, transform their values to embrace human values as opposed to survival values that we develop in our subcultures. Uh, you know, that pretty much has you feel in a sense of urgency. Mm-hmm. And uh, you live on that blade of urgency. And uh, for example, I have a couple friends, uh, one of my dearest friends, he died at 92 oh. uh, inside the prison. Wow. And um, mm-hmm. I, was, I was fortunate enough to see him. I was probably the last outside person to see him, uh, probably within 72 hours of his, of his passing. Oh, my goodness. You know, just having conversations with him. You know, he was a jolly old fella. You know what I mean? Uh, he spent, every time I seen him, he was trying to figure out that I had a getaway car ready, you know. <laughs> and uh, that would be the pun between us as we was, mm. you know, uh, bantering back and forth. But um, you can almost feel the fear of dying in prison. Yeah. It's, it's, it's that heavy. And Pennsylvania, unfortunately, mm, I'm going to give you statistical um I'm going to quote statistics. Yes, please. But they're not going to be 100% accurate. Okay. Uh, but they're going to be a general ballpark. Mm-hmm. You figure they got over 5,000 lifers. 2,000 of them has been there more than 30 years. And uh, a good many of them come in 24, 25. So 30 years on 24, 25 puts you in the range of 50, 55 years old. Mm-hmm. And then you have a few that come in you know, maybe about five, 600 come in that are men that are, you know, 35 to 40 years old. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you got 30 years in and you went in at 35, you're 65 years old. You're already at the age of retirement in the street. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there are a lot of men that are brooding and uh, feeling the pressure of um, their mortality. Yeah. I um, read an article from last year that quoted Robert Salim Holbrook, the executive director of Straight Ahead. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with that group or not, but they work on transformative justice. They work to end death by incarceration. And um, he's talking about, this is about, here's a quote here. This is about public safety. We know that people over 55 have the lowest recidivism rates and chances of reoffending decline with age. No one is guaranteed release under a bill that was coming up for um, a vote to assist, you know, um, in freeing people over a certain age. So he says, no one is guaranteed release under this bill. The people we see coming home are elders, mentors, and leaders working to keep others on the right path. That's Brother Selene. Uh, he was a juvenile lifer. Um, there was a case that came before that said that uh, a human doesn't mature mentally until about the age of 26. Mm-hmm, I've heard that. So what they did was they uh, gave parole eligibility across the country to all of the people who had went to prison and were sentenced to life without parole. Um, by the age of 18, before mm-hmm. the age of 18. And so uh, when he came, they gave the calling back, resentencing him and put him in a position to make the role when he came home. So um, what he's quoting there is accurate. 
lifers are the pillars of stability throughout the prison system. Interesting. All of staff will tell you that the men live there like that's their home and they want their home to be safe and they want their home to be as productive as possible. So when a lot of the younger people come in, uh, many of whom are unsettled, got all kinds of challenges, uh, trying to find what it means to be a man, uh, thinking that uh, violence, uh, being able to marshal violence in the instance is a hallmark of what it means to be masculine. Mm -hmm. uh, many young people that are living in fear and insecure like that, when they come through the prison, it's the seniors, the, 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 the lifers uh, that stabilize them, that mentor them, that assist them in coming to terms with, uh, you come to prison, you got 12 years to serve. How are you going to serve your 12 years? Are you going to serve your 12 years in denial, uh, still running around trying to get high, um, uh, flexing? Mm. So you were talking about how lifers provide the stability. I would have never even thought of that, but it makes so much sense. And and, and the staff uh, uh, takes advantage of that. You know, they take unbridled advantage of that. Uh, the men can't go home, but, you know, they make the best of a bad situation. And they utilize uh, lifers in many instances to quell disturbances, to, you know, assist when something is uh, amiss inside the prison. They uh, provide housing, as an example. Uh, they got a couple hotheads coming in. They put them in a cell with a person that is um, a force within the system, mm -hmm. knowing that what will happen is that person will uh, have an opportunity to engage on every subject because they cohabitate in the same cell. And that's one of the ways they manage uh, prisons in Pennsylvania to some extent. We but see every, that we see that on TV, <laughs> actually you know, getting put in the cell with the older uh, mentor type. And, and the irony of it is uh, Pennsylvania prisons are run in such a way that they are autonomous, almost autonomous. They're supposed to have oh. uh, a central authority, but there is uh, a corporate culture that has taken root within these various institutions uh, that has their own paradigm of how they do a lot of things. Mm -hmm. You know, and I talked to the secretary not too long ago, and he was six, a, a temporary secretary, and he was talking about the difference between the prisons in Tennessee and the prisons in Pennsylvania and how in Tennessee, his word is law. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Pennsylvania, he got to negotiate and, you know, uh, uh, find his way, even though his words should still be law. But the unions are so powerful within the prison system. And what they do is they fight for creature comforts and what they frame as safety. And, um, the bottom line is uh, when you treat a man like a dog, you can expect at some point to get bitten. And in yeah. too many instances, structurally, this is how they approach uh, the prisoners. And when you toss in this MAGA force that's running across the planet and know that in Pennsylvania, what they did was during the mass incarceration surge, uh, manufacturing had left the United States, and in these coal mining and steel mining regions, they put prisons. 
uh, to supplement the economy. Uh, and so you have these people up here in what we call the mountain jails who have their own cultural way of doing things, how they live. And it's often cultural classes. And that's one of the things that the uh, secretary is having difficulty trying to manage. But going back to this, the mm-hmm. seniors, because that's who I, I'm, I'm not saying that's who I try to serve as much as most of the people there, these are friends of mine. I mean, I was there 33 years. And uh, you just don't walk away from family after 33 years and act like, you know, uh, there's nothing there to connect you. So I got a few prisoners that I'm working on their cases, assisting them, trying to find some relief, um, any way that I can support them through visitation, send them a couple of dollars, um, uh, and do interventions in some of their family domestic situations. Uh, you know, I do what I can. Uh, looking at the uh, history of the institution itself and you know prisons, how has it changed and has it gotten any better when you talk about the unions, now the corporates, you know, these are corporations now. Has it made it any better for prisoners or has it made it much worse? Much worse. But now I can only speak for Pennsylvania. I'm sure that when you go where you had literally the reinstitution of slavery uh, throughout the South, it's going to be a whole lot different. So when you bring in uh, corporate entities and you professionalize and things, that makes it's, it's going to be a lot better. In, in Pennsylvania, which I can speak to directly, Pennsylvania and New Jersey, it's not. Uh, because, first of all, the men already had their dignity. Uh, they had fought most administrations to stand still in terms of being over the top with abuse. They had pretty much put that in check. And then originally uh, the officer corps was not unionized. So they had to deal with everybody man to man. And uh, that no matter where you at in life, when you encounter another human being, whether you're in a blue uniform or a black uniform or striped uniform, men are gonna be men and men are gonna respect men. And mm-hmm. within the Pennsylvania prison system, uh, we had that uh, respect in so many instances. You didn't do nothing that they, they, they had to absolutely uh, use violence to gain control or to compel you to follow something as, a, as an institutional rule. Yeah, free reign. You could almost do as you please inside the Pennsylvania prison system for a period of time. I'll say I started going to prison in 1968, and I'll say uh, 68 to 80, uh, prisoners had pretty much a lot more, I hate to use the word freedoms, but I'll talk about it in the context of creature comforts than, uh, say, a, a lot of your southern jails, for example. It wouldn't even be close by comparison, not in terms of food not in terms of movement, not in terms of education, not in terms of community participation behind the wall. Uh, All of the things that you would mark that would say uh, this would assist a person in coming to terms with having violated the community and he wanted to get his life right to do better. 
all the boxes that you would check for that. Uh, you could check in the Pennsylvania jails where you probably couldn't do it in the uh, Southern jails. And, and now with the unions coming in, the unions have, you know, you figure, like I said, you got all these mountain jails. So you're going to have a lot of the people that are going to be MAGA people and they're going to have a different agenda. Their agenda is not for rehabilitation. Their agenda is for creature comfort for themselves and uh, uh, increase. Uh, pay, and they want the working conditions to be on their terms. And so they got all kinds of things that they, you know, bring to bear. Uh, they stop uh, prisoners from being able to go to school in some of these jails. Oh, no. Uh, you know, rehabilitation is not the issue. That the point is uh, uh, incapacitation and warehousing in too many instances. Even though they try and give lip service to some stuff, and, and how it unfolds in practice is that, uh, you know, they got the prisons on lockdown. Now, uh, the fight for so many people, and I'm listening to the Secretary of Correction talk, Pennsylvania prisons as of the COVID um, pandemic eat in their cells. They do not eat in, like you would see on TV, everybody go to what they call the mess, mess hall. hall yeah. They don't eat in the mess hall, they eat in their cells. And so what that means is that that adds, so if you went to, the, the child to eat, that'd be an hour and 15, hour and 20 minutes that you would be out to sell. So now you lose that time because you're eating in your cell. And uh, so the secretary was talking about how to increase any time that they lose by not going, by not having access to going to the child hall and they locked in their cells, that the administration has to find a way to make that time available for them to be out of the cell. Okay. And that's the, the type of negotiations that they have with the unions right now. Mm -hmm. Did you have a chance to mentor others who came in who were younger than you? Uh, yes, ma'am. Just about everybody. You know, uh, I had I didn't have, but there was a prison literacy project. We had done a statistical analysis and uh, three out of five men in Greater Ford Prison could not read the newspaper. And... Mm. Uh, the governor's wife, a uh, lady by the name of Jenny Thornburg, thought that if prisoners were able to read, anybody coming to prison was able to read at uh, at least a, a high school level, that, that that would impact recidivism once they released. They would have yeah. the capacity to be a better employee. Mm -hmm. And so a group of people got together with uh, Miss uh, Thornburg, the first lady, and put together a project called the Prison Literacy Project. Okay. So I had already been an employee, a prison employee inside the school and uh, had done tutoring and would always be writing letters for the various prisoners who couldn't articulate their either legal issues or in some instances, uh, just being able to write to their family. So I had done that just on the natural and most uh, prisoners who uh, have academic skills are often put in position to assist people who are less fortunate in that regard. So that's just a given. And uh, so a lot of the programs that they have, that they uh, require you to participate in, short of drug and alcohol treatment or some psychological uh, therapies, the genesis of a good many of them are from the prisoners themselves. Okay. Hmm. Got to ask, I mean, you spend a lot of time 
in prison. Did you ever have that time when you just felt like this is, I'm not getting out? Did you ever lose hope? No, I, I got I got angry at myself when I when I got my first parole hit. For for the bulk of the time that I was in prison, a, a substantial portion of it anyway, I was already on the the short the short list for escape. Uh, I, I went in as a complete person with a fully formed value system, and I was in perpetual uh, rebellion against oppression, and my worldview dictated that uh, I did everything I could to be a free man. So, you know, during the course of my incarceration, they took me out twice and, cha- and charged me with attempt escapes. Um, a couple other occasions, they didn't have enough evidence to try and give me a new charge. And they would just put me in hold for like 90 to 60 days and transfer me to another prison. So for me, a good bit of, even though I did all those other things, I never relinquished the right that I had uh, over myself for my own personal self uh, self-determination. And then when I got to about maybe 10 years left on my minimum, now this is the other thing, I was always in court. Uh, I never thought at any given time that you could stop me and talk to me that I'd be in prison the following year. I had some kind of escape plan. I had some appeal in court that had meritorious issues. So it never occurred to me that I was going to be in the penitentiary in 30 years. That just never even was on my horizon under no circumstances. And so by the time I got about, uh, well, and another thing happened. They recommended me for early release Okay. when I had 15 years in. But for a gentleman getting out on early release and killing three, four people, oh. I'd have been out in 15 years, 16 years max. So you got these things, you live in your life day by day. Mm. And within the day by day, there are always, you always anticipating dates that you could possibly be free because you got activity in motion that it could culminate in you being out. Mm-hmm. So by the time I got to, like I said, I had about 10 years left, I'm plotting on coming home for work release. All you had to do was two thirds of your minimum and you eligible to come out for work release. So it was always some carrot before you that, before me, mm-hmm. that, um, you know, conceivably I thought that in a uh, very short order, I'd be in the street. Yeah. I hadn't heard of attempted escape before. And I can see where that could just be thrown on someone just to get them um, you know, even in a much darker place, you know, and to extend their mm-hmm. suffering. It's just to accuse them of that because it's he said, she said at this point, right? With attempted escape. Not, not if the police is pulling a gun out on you, telling you to get down off the wall. You at well, the top of the wall getting ready to go. Right. <laughs> well, right. When it's, uh, yeah. But if you weren't doing that and you were just having a conversation, you're the person who likes to have meetings with, um, you know, the guys down the hall, they could it's say, a, oh, attempted escape, right? Yes, but that's not my experience. You know, my experience okay. that, uh, again, we all people here. Right. But in the course of day-to-day activity on a regular basis, we come in contact with each other too much. And- while you run into a lot of the, you know, hateful people who rely on you and stuff like that, they got enough problems where people are uh, just rebelling. I mean, you know, 
Uh, just think your child and you, you, you have a, 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 a what you call a child, the child is all upset. Think of a baby that's colic, a yeah. colic baby, for example. And, you know, take that into an adult who's just can't, ain't going to put up with it and is just fed up and whatnot. I mean, we'll have a man who's been in jail 20 years and for five years, he's telling everybody, I'm leaving January the 5th, uh, 2020. And then January 5th, 2020 coming, he walk up to the door with his boxes like he think he's going on. And so now they got to deal with that kind of situation. Come on, Yousef, man, I understand how you feel, but it ain't today. Maybe it might be, it, they meant 2021. And trying mm. to, you know, coax you out of this intense sense of desperation. So they got enough of that, that they don't have to go around and make up like, well, Yousef was trying to escape. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's enough people trying it well. In the beginning, when I first went to prison, people that would have one in two, three years would be out there trying to escape. All of the escape paraphernalia that I would gather, I could put it in. You figure it might have been a thousand people in the, in the jail at that time. I could have put it in any one of 500 cells. I mean, hold this for me. Police might be searching my cell tonight. Wow. And this is the nature, the psychology of us against them. We all yes. want to be free. They trying to keep us in jail. Yeah. And this goes for the Aryan Brotherhood, the Black Panthers, the Black Guerrilla family could come into an alliance about trying to get out of jail. Yeah. I just wanted yeah. to um, talk about what you're currently up to. You seem to be pretty active in um, here in the U.S., what's going to be a big election, the midterm elections. And I guess you're working on the local level, really um an activist for some platforms, please share with us, you know, what's important to you. And, and again, based on your situation, what you want to see change? Well, you know, I, I consider myself uh, uh, a person that's interested, involved in human emancipation. Okay. Uh, man has so many oppressive constructs all across the globe that uh, we participate in, we contribute to, and we reinforce with some of our daily activities. And I won't go into details given the shortness of time. But for me, the main enemy in America, in the world, is male domination. Uh, men living on plays where they fearful of other men and they set up all kinds of uh, powered constructs that allow them to stay in power, in control, and not be victimized as if somebody ran over their country and change everything, think in terms of the conquistadors, what they did to uh, Mexico and South America. So for me, to regionalize that, right now we're in the fight for, they frame it for democracy. And in my area, there are five districts that we think that we can flip. Mm -hmm. And so we got two meetings, I got two meetings tonight uh, that is addressing that one in Philadelphia and one out in Quilevet, where we're coming together to marshal the resources to be able to ensure that the people's voice is heard. And uh, so that's both the turnout and the registration and the education that uh, I say to people this, uh, it ain't but two ways you're going to transform this condition. And that is one, you're going to storm the Capitol and do what the uh, uh, insurrectionists did and uh, uh, be successful like George Washington was with the American Revolution. It's going to be like that. Or you're going to vote. 
Yeah. Them the only two choices that you got. And since none of y'all have the slightest idea how to do the George Washington thing, <laughs> I suggest you just stop whining and uh, yeah. going down there and uh-huh. let your voice be heard through the vote. Right. I, I think we'd be remiss if we don't talk about, you know, this starts young when we talk about the, yeah. about the prison system. I mean, these corporate people are planning, strategically planning, and they kind of can project based on, you know, these children who are in school who might not be able to read at a certain age, that they might eventually be in the prison system. So what do you do to uh, intervene or what advice do you give or what things do you speak to when it comes to the young, when it comes to education and preventing young people from going to jail? Uh, To to, to my generation, I say that uh, we absent from the development of their values because we in prison, we scared of our young people because they out there half crazy. And so we don't participate like we used to do. There was a time that the adults was on one side and children was on the other. And no matter what the child did, every adult was pretty much on the same page about son, that ain't the right thing to do. That's absent in our community right now. The men as a moral force is absent as a collective, <clears throat> you might do it for your kids, but you ain't saying nothing to nobody else's kids because you don't want no trouble with the parents talking about, well, I know you ain't talking about my, my son like that. Right. What I say to my generation is we got to show up. We got to go back to, uh, it's a cliche, the community that raises the child. We got to go back to that because uh, we need to be fully invested in these children's ability to be successful. And so we bring the best of what we understand from the school of hard knocks and we bring that to bear. Now, when we start talking about from an institutional point of view, the police as an example, uh, we need to participate in police in our own communities and police in the police. So that means that we need to push for community control over the police so that we can have both the subpoena power and the power to fire. Uh, if it comes that the police was out of pocket, We need to also make sure that a certain percentage of the officers live in the community, can't have outside police forces coming in like occupying armies. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, when we start talking about education, for me, uh, every human being should have the capacity to know what the facts are. That way they can process them and ain't none of us dumb. If we have uh, a full appreciation of the facts and they are Uh, provided in terms of context, uh, most people will make pretty much uh, uh, a decision in their self-interest that will not be uh, something that's counterproductive. So at every uh, point of entry, as far as interpersonal relationships, wherever I interface with any human being, uh, I'll address whatever the concern is uh, haven't given it some thought uh, from schools to uh, 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 crime watching your neighborhood to uh, disciplining children that uh, is out here uh, carrying guns, uh, uh, just jumping up out of fear uh, with their eyes closed, pulling the trigger. You know, uh, we need to be able to can be on the ground and the men have to do this. And, and this is not to say that the women don't. And this is not the male construct with that toxic masculinity. This is 
the characteristic that men are protectors and providers. And we that historically, if you just know the history of the human race, how uh, if you don't protect the women in your family and you allow other men to come in there and have their way with the women in your family, you're not going to have a very successful uh, family unit unless the men who come in there are already men of principle and they're not coming in there with the, you know, do as do can. But that's because of patriarchy. The fact that we live by might is right, that these values and virtues, they evolve under those kind of uh, uh, strained uh, circumstances of groups coming together that are disparate and afraid of each other, don't know each other, and uh, go into protective mode. We have to come to grips with that. And for me, how I do it on a personal level is I begin with the proposition that every child in my sphere of influence is mine. And I treat them as if they're mine. And I hold myself accountable uh, to be sure that I impart the best that I understand in any given situation. Well, you're speaking truth, Yusef Jones. Oh, yeah. And a lot of things we don't realize when it comes to uh, what's going on in prisons, because uh, a lot of times we don't pay attention mm-hmm. or I've reported on a number of different prison stories in the news. Mm-hmm. And a lot of, and often people don't want to know much about it. They just say, well, you're in there. You must, you must have done something to be in there and you deserve to stay in there. We'll have more after this. And we're back with more from Mr. Yusef Jones. Anything, any last thoughts, any final thoughts as you were with us? Well, the only thing that I I, I try to say to everybody at this stage is please uh, go out and vote your discontent. Don't just be sitting in there wallowing in your uh, uh, sense of frustration and nothing is going to work because that's really not true. And uh, the African-American experience in this country has been that we put America on our back and tried to drag America toward its own ideals. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been in the forefront of that struggle uh, from the beginning. Yeah. And we shouldn't abandon our leadership in that role now. And uh, so for me, I just see it in terms of um, we got work to do. Uh, we should assume the leadership position in so many of these uh, crisis circumstances and speak truth to power and uh, don't be hypocritical. Oh, thank you. Yes, thank you, Mr. Yusuf. Mr. Wow. Yusuf Jones, amazing. Um, you know, when they go in and don't know when they're going to get out, if they're going to get out, I, I, I just can't imagine it. And that's why I think I seek out talking to people who are in the system who uh, who have a chance, you know, and who give others a chance because you never right. know what that day, when that day is going to come. That is really about not knowing where life is going to take you, right? So true. You know, what Mr. Yusuf shared with us just lets you know that so much is going on that we don't realize, you know? Oh, I'm thinking about his 92-year-old friend. Yeah. Well, there's a fear of death while you're inside. Now, what is that fear? Is it that you're dying alone? 
that you wish you you weren't in that circumstance because if I had just done things differently, um, right. it to they're dying without peace, any sense of peace, and um, is that because as he said, you know, you're treated a certain way um, in the system. Mm-hmm. It, it's not allow, allowing your full potential as a man. So, so much there, you know, that you get to think about if you're in for life. Right. And it's always an interesting discovery, as you said, Bryant, when you really acknowledge someone else's circumstance, especially these circumstances. Yeah, Nicole, I think we're all so much better when we have that insight for sure. And of course, before we go, we want to remind everyone to keep others in mind when pursuing life's freedoms. Uh, that's so true, Nicole. I think just like Mr. Youssef shared with us, we really need to be a part of our community in a bigger way. There's no time like the present. What a what gift. A gift. If, if you go to jail, so what? If you're black, you were born in jail. If you black, you were born in jail. In the North as well as the South. Stop talking about the South. Long as you south of the long as you south of the Canadian border, you're south. This is why I say it's the ballot or the bullet. It's liberty or it's death. It's freedom for everybody or freedom for nobody. Yeah.